So the title of my, my sermon is a hope that holds. This hope, the Christian hope, this blessed hope, it holds us up and it is meant to be heralded. It is meant to be shared. It is meant to be proclaimed. So we're going to talk about a hope that holds, means it holds us up and is meant to be heralded. Here's the big idea. God's people are meant to look to their future hope for strength in the present. God's people are meant to look to their future for hope and strength in the present. One more time, I said it incorrectly the first time. God's people are meant to look to their future for hope and strength in the present. Um, I think we'd all agree that you cannot run a race without first knowing where you are going, right? you got to know where you're going. And knowing where the finish line is and knowing the prize that awaits you affects how you run. Is true? If you've read Revelation, it's not Revelations. Uh, I have a funny story I'll tell quickly. When I was uh, a chaplain at the Boston Rescue Mission, I've shared the story before, but there was a guy named Tex, and he was from South Carolina, but because he had an accent, everyone in Boston thought he was from Texas, so he got the nickname Tex. And he was a pretty charismatic fellow, um, just his personality and even some of his beliefs. A sweet guy. I think he truly loved the Lord, but he goes, Chris, God has given me a word for you. And I'm like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> what? Okay. Uh, I Actually, I got a, a word from God this morning when I read the Bible, but I want to hear what you have to say, Tex. He said, and I was teaching through Mark, and he goes, um, God told me that you need to stop preaching through Mark and preach through the book of Revelations. I'm like, I think the Lord would know how to pronounce the book. It is Revelation. But no, I just said, you know what? Text, God is not giving me that word, and I'm going to keep preaching through Mark. So, yeah. But I love Revelation. Um, you know, it's the only book that both John Calvin and Martin Luther did not write a commentary for. They wrote commentaries for every book of the Bible minus Revelation because they were overwhelmed by it and humbled by it. I want to talk about just a little bit um, the book itself. We're going to focus on the last not the last, well, yeah, the last section, there's another chapter, but 21, 1 to 4, which I think once I read it, you'll be familiar with it, you'll, you'll have heard it before, but I want to give a little context. In the first three chapters of Revelation, John addresses seven churches in Asia, and if you read those chapters, the common theme in each address is the call of Jesus Christ upon each church to do what? To listen, but to endure, to persevere, to endure, right? And, and I want to ask the question, how do God's people endure? How do we persevere? You know, Paul and the writer of Hebrews both describe the Christian life as a race to be run. We see that in 1 Corinthians 9. We see it in Romans, Romans but, uh, Hebrews 12. How do we endure? How do we persevere? Well, um, there's more than one right answer because there's multiple resources that God gives his people to endure. We would say, well, we endure by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I would say, amen. We endure with the help of God's people, the church, who spur us on and encourage us when we're down. Amen. But I want to highlight one thing tonight, and it's this. We endure, we persevere by keeping our eyes on the finish line, our eternal reward our future hope. Now, when we think of the gospel, and I, I love this, I love talking about this, um, the gospel, but this illustration really helps people, I think, 
to understand the, the fullness of the gospel, the bigness of the gospel. When we think of the gospel, we tend to think solely of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that is the gospel message, right? According to Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, that is the good news. Jesus lived, he died, and he rose again. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. And yet there's more. The gospel's bigger, right? And here's what I'm coming to say. There's not more to the message. That is the gospel message. But the effects of the gospel, that's what I want to talk about now. The word gospel has its moorings in the ancient Greco-Roman world. So one thinks of the great definitive battle between Octavian and Mark Antony. And this was like 31 BC, okay? And guess who won? Octavian. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And when he won, the whole Roman Empire began to shout, Uengelion, which means good news, right? That was the word gospel. For them, it was good news that the final battle had been won. Because what this meant was now we have a new king. Now, finally, we have peace in the empire. That's good news, right? I mean, who longs for civil unrest? Nobody. Who longs for a good king? Well, as Christians, we have the best king. But again, during this time, and that the battle was called the Battle of Actium, right? And when that battle was fought and won by Octavian, it meant there's no more fighting, right? The battle's been won. There's victory. We have a new king, and now instead of civil unrest, there's going to be peace, okay? But here's the cool thing about this word. It meant, so the good news had three parts. It meant the battle's been won. It meant things are different now because the battle's been won. There's now what? Not division, but what's the opposite of division? There's peace. There's unity. There's peace in the empire. But do you know how long it took Octavian to get back to Rome? Two years. But when he did, do you know what happened? They had a massive parade. They received him. It was a big celebration. That, too, was part of the good news message. So, again, I want us to think about the good news as having really three parts. Let me go back to the Battle of Octavian and Actium. Number one, Octavian's victory at Actium was good news. The fact that the battle's been won. There's no more battles to be fought. This was the definitive victory. Now Mark Antony and his troops, they're done. We have a king, and it's Julius Caesar's adopted son. Two, this victory resulted in a time of peace. No more civil unrest. So because the battle was won, things were different now. And thirdly, like I said, it took two years for the new king to make it to Rome. But when he did, it was a great celebration. It was good news. There was a parade. Now think of this as Christians. When Jesus died on the cross, the battle was what? It was won. And because the battle has been won, things are different now. Amen? We now have peace with God. But guess what? Is the good news over? No. Whose return are we waiting for? Christ, he's going to come back. He's going to make everything right. Everything ugly, everything wrong in this sinful world, he's going to, well, he's going to make it right. He's going to right all wrongs. So the battle's been won. All God's people said, amen. amen. Things are different now because the battle's been won. Amen. But guess what? Our king's returning. Do we await the king's return? Do we long for his return? And all of this is part of the good news, right? Do you have this hope, this hope that 
Yes, the battle's been won. So if you trust in Jesus now who died for your sins and rose again, you can have, as we learned on Sunday, peace with God. You're no longer condemned, right? Things are different now. I'm a new creation because I'm in Christ. I belong to a new family, right? I have a new verdict spoken over me. But that's not the end of my hope. I I also believe that that king who lived, died, and rose again and then ascended to heaven is going to come back. He's going to come back to be with his people for how long? Forever. Do you have this hope? It can be yours by trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So I want to take time to unpack this hope that we have. It's found in Revelation 21, 1-4. But one more point of application here that I want to bring to light. If you know much about church history, when you step back and you look at the early church, I mean, was it a vacation for them? Man, they suffered horrendously. But here's what the ancient world didn't understand. Why are these Christians able to suffer so well with such peace and poise? Why? It was because of their hope. What you believe about the future affects how you live and act in the present. Amen? When you know the end of the story, you can live and act and think differently. And the reason these believers suffered so well in the first century And the reason believers today throughout the world suffer so well is because of their future hope. Because when you know the end of the story, it affects how you live in the present. Amen? I mean, guys, life can be hard. We know that. But when you put that, whatever life situation you're facing, and you put it in light of this grand ending that is ours, the king is coming back, it really makes everything pale in light of that. Amen? I mean, again, I'm not downplaying suffering, okay? I spend a lot of time with people who suffer. But when you think about that, in light of the returning king, in the eternity with God that is ours because of what Christ has done, oh, it enables you to endure. Amen? So how did the early church endure? How does John, who wrote Revelation, want us to endure? By remembering the end of the story, the future. You know, Paul was really good when he wrote his letters. And I'm going through Philippians right now with uh, the... It's so funny, guys. Dude, I know we got some Hudson families here. And I, I went to Hudson. But man, the Central basketball team right now is on fire. Seven and one. And I have that whole team in my Bible study on Wednesdays at the high school. And we're going through Philippians. And I'm telling them, guys, be like Paul. Be like Jesus. But again, Paul, when he writes, he's got one eye on the future and one eye on the present. And the reason he's able to suffer so well and persevere in the present is because he's looking towards what? The future. All right, so that's enough introduction. Let me read our passage. Um, Revelation 21, 1 to 4. I got three points, and I'll I'll try to move quickly. Um, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And I think this is the portion that many of us are familiar with. Verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, 
for the former things have passed away. You know, I'll just I'll mention this briefly because you guys know our story. But after we lost Abigail and we buried her, and then we had three more miscarriages, two of them second trimester, back to back to back. My wife and I were struggling. We were suffering. But every night I would have my Bible open in bed and I would read Psalms, but I would always end with Revelation 21, verse 4. And I would say, babe, that is our hope. That is what we have to look forward to. I know this is hard, but guess what? Our King promises one day to wipe away every tear. There's going to be no more crying, no more pain one day. Amen? Man, and just, I'll be honest, you know, we believe, I hope we believe as Christians that this is not a normal book. It is the Word of God, and it is a healing balm upon the hearts of God's people. All right. What stands out in our passage? What we see in these verses, if you are listening carefully, is a complete reversal of sin, of the fall. I often think of, and I, I talk about this, I, I use this language because John uses it in Revelation. The, the Bible begins in a garden, and it ends in a garden. Did you know that? Isn't that beautiful? And so what Christ has done in the middle of a story, the, the Bible is one big story. It's the story of redemption through Jesus Christ. What gets us from the Garden of Eden, which we were all kicked out of because of Adam and Eve's sin and our sin, back into the garden. It's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so the, the story of Scripture is all about a return to the garden. What is the believer's hope? And these are my three points. John's vision of the future in Revelation 21, 1-4 focuses on three things. And here they are. And I mean, if you want to go ahead and fill in the blanks now, you can. Or you can wait because we'll take these one at a time. Number one, a new place void of evil. A new place void of evil. Number two, and this is the best part, unhindered fellowship with God. That is what makes heaven so glorious. And number three, the absence of pain, sadness, and death. Now, we know these things in part now, but one day we will know them perfectly, right? We are the place where God dwells by the Holy Spirit. We have fellowship with God now through Jesus Christ. We no longer bear the shame and the guilt of our sin, but we still live in a world plagued by sin and evil. We've tasted the Lord, amen? But we still long for the perfect. And that's what we have encapsulated in Revelation 21, 1-4, is the perfect that is yet to come. It's coming. It's coming. So we'll start with a new place. A new place void of evil. Verses 1 and 2 speak of a new heaven and a new earth. A new city coming down out of heaven prepared for who? For God's people. Now, what is inherent to this promise? Namely, the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. God promises to provide his people with a new space that is totally free from the influence of sin. And if that doesn't get you fired up, I don't know what will. Because I hope, I hope you hate sin. I hope you loathe it. I hope you can't wait to be completely rid of it. Because again, we have new hearts. We have a new king. We have a new family. But are we yet free from the influence of sin? No. But will we be one day? Yes. Matthew 19, 28. This is a really cool passage. I know we've all, 
I got to stop saying all. Man, I've preached in churches where I've had people say, who's Paul? And I'm like, oh boy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm not going to say all anymore because I don't know where everybody's at. But this is a passage I think many of us have heard. Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, truly I tell to you, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things. That's such a great, it's one word actually in the, in the Greek, polygenesia. But at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, speaking to the disciples there. But the phrase, the renewal of all things, that's a long phrase. It's one Greek word. It's pollen, genesia. Pollen means again. Genesis means what? Beginning or beginning. So new beginnings or beginnings again. That's what he's promising. Truly, I tell you, at the new beginnings, there's going to be a new beginning, a new creation. Now, to emphasize this point, John uses, and if you grew up on the coast, I promise you, if you grew up near a big body of water, you read verse 1 of Revelation 21, and you're like, oh man, the sea was no more? Like, there's going to be no bodies of water in the new heaven? What do you think John means by this? Does this mean that the new creation will be void of beautiful bodies of water? I don't think so. In the ancient Jewish world, the sea had come to represent chaos, rebellion, and destruction. It was the personification of evil. So when Jesus walks on water in the Gospels, or when Jesus stills the storm, is he conveying his authority over nature? Yes and amen. But he's doing more than that. He's revealing his purpose for coming. He's come to deal with evil and to defeat it. So the phrase, in the sea was no more, is a promise that the new heaven and the new earth, the new creation, every rebellious power, every evil threat, everything contrary to God's good purposes will be totally and completely gone. Now, is that a good promise? Every enemy, everything opposed to God and his rule is going to be no mas. Now, in Romans 8, 21 to 23, Paul associates the future renewal of God's good creation with the resurrection of his people. So both God's people and God's creation will be made new. This is Romans 8, 21 to 23. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our what? Our bodies. So when we look at our world today, we too should be moved to do what? To groan. That signifies our deep longing for the new and the perfect, right? I mean, are you guys okay with the way things are today? No, you shouldn't be. We should groan. What is the world doing? The world is groaning, and we should groan as we await the what? The perfect to come. So many years ago, we were in a position to buy a new house. This was in Washington State. We'd saved. Um, man, we our house did really well. Our first house did really well. And as our family grew, our first house was tiny. As our family grew, we realized we need more space. And, you know, it's kind of fun when you're looking for a new home. And um, I thought we found the perfect home. I mean, it was a great deal. 
It had a big backyard. Now, where we live, like a half-acre backyard was huge. I was like, this is incredible. It was updated. You know, everything was new in the house. Um, it was beautiful. But I had a cop friend that went to our church. He was one of our members. He goes, Chris, whenever you look to buy a new home in this area, tell me the address and I'll look it up because I know where all the crime happens. I, I know what to look for. Um, I can kind of assess that area for you. And I said, okay, well, hey, hey, Jeremy. His name was Jeremy King. I said, Jeremy, we found this house. We love it. It's in our budget. It's got a big backyard for the kids. He goes, Chris. And I was like, oh, I don't like that. Don't start with that. He goes, I would not let my wife walk in that neighborhood at night by herself. So come to find out a lot of the drug traffic that happened in Marysville, Washington, happened in that neighborhood. <laughs> if I didn't know that, you know, I would it looked nice. It looked like a, a nicer area. I, th I thought it was nice. And he goes, Chris, this is not a good area. And uh, and so we, we bought that house. No, we didn't. We didn't buy that house. Because again, do you think I said, oh, well, Jeremy, I hate to break it to you. That's what we're looking for. We want a dangerous neighborhood. We long for threats. No, of course not. Nobody longs for that in life. We actually long for the opposite. And that's our hope. Amen. Every threat, every opposition to God and his people will be removed at the restoration of all things in the new creation. Creation, God's people, we long for this now, and we know that one day it will be. Now, how is our new place described? Our digs, right? How's our new place described? Verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from, and that's probably the most important phrase, coming down from who? from God. Now, if you underline your Bibles, and are afraid to do that, I would underline that prepositional phrase. This city is coming from God. Now, there's so much there, that one phrase from God. That tells us that this place is good, because who does it come from? It's God, and God is what? God is good. No bad neighborhood. No bad neighborhood? I know! I won't have to call Jeremy and say, Jeremy, no, it's all good, right? Essentially, what we see happening in verses 1 and 2 is heaven coming down. What we see happening in God's perfect future is heaven and earth coming together. And the two adjectives used to describe God's heavenly city are highly significant. What are the two adjectives used in verse 2? It's holy and it's new. Now, we all like new things. We like that new car smell. We like new homes. Um, and hopefully as Christians, we like things that are holy. Hopefully we desire to be holy, right? Which that word simply means set apart unto the Lord. But again, the two words used to describe our future place, holy and what else? New. Now it's holy because it is God's dwelling place. It is set apart to him, free of sin and dedicated to his glory. It's new in that it's distinguished from the what? From the old. Whereas the old order, our current world, is characterized by the hideous effects of sin, the new will be completely free of what? Sin. Now, again, that one phrase that I just I had you underline that I think is worth paying attention to is the phrase, it's from God. And this speaks to the inherent goodness of of this place because it comes from God. It's from Him. What grace it is to be received, this future place, as a gift, a good gift from who? From God. Now, we're meant to contrast. Now, if you think of 
corrupt cities in the Bible, what comes to mind? Sodom and Gomorrah. We have Babel, Power Babel, Babylon, right? And so we're meant to contrast God's perfect city with the Tower of Babel and Babylon, right? The Tower of Babel and Babylon represent what? Human rebellion. The, the attempt to do life independently of God, which is the inverse of God's plan for his people. Not so the New Jerusalem. Here things will be as they should be with God's people living under God's glorious rule. And that is our future. And all God's people said, oh. In the incarnation, which is a, a big word for a really important doctrine, the incarnation is this great truth that the Son of God, Jesus, who has been eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, left glory and he became what? He became man, right? And so in the incarnation, we have previewed what's promised in Revelation 21, verse 2. As heaven came down in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, then so too at the consummation. God's glorious rule in all its fullness will come down and permeate the new earth. What's the Lord's Prayer? How does it begin? Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as... Guys... That prayer is going to one day perfectly come to fruition on earth as it is in heaven. One day that prayer is going to be perfectly realized. And it's described where? Revelation 21, 1-4. The holiness of heaven, the glory of heaven, and the righteousness of heaven will fill God's new world. I hate that I keep talking about Disney World. I just think this is a good illustration, so I'm going to use it. But I know for many children, right? Disney World or Disneyland. It's land in California and world in Florida. Which one was first? California, right? California was first. Okay. Either one. I, I don't know. I've only been to one of them. But for a lot of kids, like they long to go to Disney, right? They think it's the greatest, maybe because an older sibling went and they describe it as like the greatest place on earth, but it's not perfect. Why? Sure, it's great. But it has its flaws. And worst of all, that Disney experience, it's not going to last. Because you got to come home, right? You can't stay at Disney forever. It's not going to last. It's not meant to last. What we have described in Revelation 21, 1-4 is not only perfect in every way, but it's permanent. It's perfect and it's permanent, baby. I mean, guys, I hope you're excited when you have described this is our future. It's without flaws. And it will last forever. All right. I'm going to move quickly now. i got like 18 minutes. How else, and this is the most important point. How else is our future hope described? Number two, unhindered fellowship with God. And this is verse three. And guys, there's something here that I saw years ago that just struck me. And I'll get there. But I want you to listen carefully to verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. You know, if you're familiar with the Abrahamic covenant, 
right, which begins really in Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3. And we saw this in Exodus, right? After the golden calf debacle, you know, God threatens to remove his presence and just send Moses and Israel ahead. But what does Moses say? If you don't go with us, we're done. Like, just take us out. If you're not going to go with us, if you're not with us, this whole thing means nothing, right? The best part of God's covenant promise is his presence. And what is promised in verse 3? Twice it's repeated. I'm going to be with them. We're going to be with him. He's going to be with us. What makes the gospel good news is that we get God. Amen? We get God. That is the climax that the rescue, I'll call it the rescue drama of God's word. Because again, the Bible tells one big story, but the climax is, again, what was lost in the garden is going to be perfectly restored at the end. We're going to be with him. Now, are we, are we with him now? Is he with us now? Yes. But do we see him now? Then we'll see him what? Face to face. Unhindered fellowship. What was lost and forfeited at the fall will be restored perfectly with God, which is fellowship with God. So God is working redemptively to bring us back because he wants us. Now, what is the good news of Christmas? Emmanuel, God with us. What's the good news of Easter? The resurrection and the ascension of the Son of God is God with us by the Holy Spirit. We get the Holy Spirit. The good news of the return of the King is unhindered fellowship with God. Do we long for that? What is the good news of the gospel? We get God. So what we lost at the fall will be completely restored. In Christ, we now have fellowship with God. We commune with Him now. I have a relationship with God now, and so do you if you've trusted in Jesus. And yet we don't see Him. We don't see Him. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. So Peter is acknowledging the blessing of our current state in Christ. We love him now, amen? We believe in him now. There is a relationship with him now, and yet the love and the faith that we have now looks ahead to a glorious future when we will be with the Lord in glory. One day we will see the Lord and be with him forever in perfect fellowship. Now, this is 1 John 3, 2. This was recent. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. So are we God's children now? Yes, that's great news. But what we will be has not yet appeared. John is saying there's something greater to come. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And how did we, how did we interpret that last time? We will be physically and morally perfect. Physically and morally perfect in God's new creation. One day, again, we will see the Lord and be with him forever in perfect fellowship. All right, I got to move. Um, okay, I'm going to keep going. At the restoration of all things, 
our salvation will have reached its perfect and final goal. We will see the king in all his glory with our resurrected bodies. I hope you guys realize how cool that is to have a resurrected body. I think the older I get, I'm, I mean, I'm not saying I'm not old. I'm turning 40 in like, what, 20 days? Wow, 20 days I'll be 40. But I mean, you know, even at 40, I mean, I played college sports. I'm not anything like I used to be 20 years ago, right? I mean, I've slowed down a lot, and I haven't slowed down much, right? I mean, I still go, go, go. But man, I know one day, <laughs> and maybe you're there, you just long. You long for that resurrection body, that body that's no longer given over to suffering and disease and pain that will be face-to-face -face with the king. Amen? That's good news, right? First Corinthians thirteen twelve. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Listen to the marriage language in verse 2. Verse 2 says, this is back to Revelation 21. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We the church are the bride of Christ. Greg Beal writes, and I love Greg. He's a, he's a great writer. He says, throughout history, God is forming his people to be his bride so that they will reflect his glory in the ages to come. It's like the bride, listen to verse 2. It's like the bride and the groom who wait. They long for the wedding day when they will come together and be one flesh, united together as husband and wife. We long for that day. Because again, marriage is a pointer to something greater. Amen? We long for that day when we, as the bride of Christ, will be united with our king in perfect fellowship. That is our hope. That is what's being promised in verse 3. And it's repeated for emphasis. He will dwell with them. God himself will be with them. God will be with us and we will be with God. Number three, last point. The absence of pain sadness and death. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Why is this language so significant? If you know the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be what? Comforted. What's the promise? Now we mourn. But then, no more. We'll be comforted. We, and, and again, why do we mourn now? I've preached on this. I preached on this in here, what, a year ago? With the Beatitudes? Maybe a year and a half ago? We mourn now because of our sin, the sin of others, and the effects of sin everywhere in our world, right? We mourn because things are not as they should be. But in the new creation, in God's holy city, there will be no more what? No more mourning. Because... There will be no more sin, and the destructive effects of sin that we see every day will be what? Completely eradicated. What hope to know that one day everything ugly will be made beautiful, everything wrong will be made right. Now, what does it say about God's character, this promise in verse 4? That he's going to remove these things. He cares for us. Amen? He loves us. And he will one day put an end to all suffering and sadness. Now, you've heard about the prosperity gospel. Hey, man, you believe in Jesus? No, just open your bank account. God will fill it up. Who do I sound like? You know? You'll be happy and healthy all your days. And I heard that devilish message when I was in Africa. I was like, are you kidding me? 
You're preaching that to these people who are suffering? Are you kidding me? That is what's called an overrealized eschatology. Eschatology is the study of end times, right? The last days. We know at the last day, at the, the end of our story, which is going to go on forever, yeah, there's going to be no more sadness, no more sickness, no more death. But not yet. But one day, amen? One day. The cross and resurrection are the guarantee of God's plan to finally put an end to all suffering and sadness. How can we know that we know that what's promised in verse 4 is going to become a reality? Because the tomb is what? It's empty. You know, this, this is thrice repeated. Three times. I shouldn't have said thrice. Who says thrice? Three times repeated in our passage. The phrase, passed away and no more. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. Verse 1. And the sea was no more. Verse 4. For the former things have passed away. The verb to pass away means to cease to exist. God wants us to see that his future place for his people will be completely void of sin and death and its painful and destructive effects. Amen? In place of tears, in place of sadness, there will be laughter and rejoicing. Chris Bruno writes, The former things, all the fallout from sin and death, will pass away. The curse will be irreversibly crushed. And we will experience what Adam and Eve were only beginning to taste in the garden. Um, you know, do people receive inheritances today still? I think that still happens, right? Yeah, I think it still happens. You know, imagine a king's son who's promised a great treasure when he turns 18. He longs for that day, right? He longs for that day. And, and why does he get this great treasure? Because he's a son of the king. It's by virtue of his relationship with the king that he's guaranteed this great treasure. If you're a child of the king, guess what you have in store? Guess what's yours? The greatest treasure imaginable, which is life forever with God in a perfect new heaven and new earth where sin is gone, pain is gone, and we're going to have increasing joy forever and ever. Who can have this hope? Who? Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our what? Inheritance. Until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This hope, this inheritance belongs to those who trust in Jesus Christ are indwelt by the Spirit of God. So if you trust in Jesus, you have the Spirit, you're a child of God, and you have this future hope guaranteed. Listen to Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be, what? Glorified with him. We may suffer now. We will suffer now. But what is the end of our story? Glory. Who's ever watched a movie? And I, I don't like horror movies. I never have. I like psychological thrillers, if they're tasteful, right? 
Now, if you've seen the movie, and you know at the climax, it looks like the protagonist, the key character, is going to die. And you're on the edge of your seat. No, it can't be. But then he makes it out, and he saves the day. If you watch that movie a second time, do you react the same way? If you're watching it with somebody for the first time, how do they react? Edge of their seat. They have no idea. They were just like you. Guys, listen. We're like that first person. We know the end of the story. And that affects how we live now in the present. Does that make sense? Now, if we didn't know the end of the story, I mean, ah, angst, anxiety, worry. But we know the end of the story. It's been written. And it's guaranteed because the tomb is empty. We know how the story ends, my friend. And because of that, we can live differently. So here's where I want to end. And i got time. Five minutes. We're just going to run through these. Knowing the end of the story has massive implications for how we live now. Okay? That's the whole point of my sermon here. What we know about then should affect how we live now. Amen? So I got A through E. Is that correct? Okay. A is evangelistic implications. We want others to know and have this hope to be transformed by the good news. So what do we do? We go and tell. This is a hope that transforms. Amen? I mean, guys, I live differently now because of this future hope. Don't you want others to have the same hope? So, knowing the end of the story should have evangelistic implications. B, peace-providing implications. Peace-providing implications, which means no matter how hard things may be now, we know what the future holds and therefore we can rest. Amen? We can rest. You lost a loved one. You lost your job. You got a hard diagnosis. Those things are serious. I'm, I'm not downplaying those things. But when you know the end of the story, you can have peace, even in a storm. Amen? You know, I, I think Jesus in Matthew, Matthew 7, 24 and 25, this is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, those of you, starting verse 24, those of you who hear these words of mine and put them into practice, you're like a man who built his house on the rock. And when the winds blow and the rain falls, what happens to the house? It stands, right? Life is full of storms. But if you build your life on Christ, and if you hope in Him, no matter what, you're going to what? You're going to stand. you got a sure foundation. It's going to hold you. This is a hope that holds. That was the big idea. C, sanctifying implications. This is our future reward, one that Christ has prepared and provided for His people. Our future heritage is meant to cause what? Endurance amongst God's people. What causes Christians to persevere? Looking to their future what? Hope. And when we do that, when we long for that, what's going to happen? We're going to become more like who? More like Christ. You guys remember, I preached on this a couple of weeks back. So, 1 John 3, and this is verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You want to grow in purity? Hope more in the return of Christ. You want to grow in purity? You want to be more holy? Hope more. The key to holiness is hope. The key to holiness is hope. 
the more you hope in the future, the more holy you're going to be. That is John's point in 1 John th uh, 3, 2 and 3. All right, keep moving. D, prayer promoting implications. What should we pray for? How does Revelation end? What's the prayer? Come, Lord Jesus. Come. We should pray for the return of the King. And we should pray that the church would be a preview of the perfect. When we think of God's future final kingdom, it's my hope that the church would look like that now. Not perfectly, but the unity and the love and the care that we're going to perfectly have for each other then should be previewed now by God's church. We should pray for that. Amen? Pray that we would be a preview of what's to come and pray for the return of the king. Who prays for the return of the king often? Come, Lord Jesus. And then lastly, E, praise proclaiming implications. We praise God for our glorious future. I promise you, by God's grace, you can praise the Lord in the midst of suffering because I've done it. I've done it. I know many of you have done it. You've praised him in the context of suffering because that hope so fuels you. It's a real hope, amen? It's just like this. It's like if you got that diagnosis that nobody wants and you said, you got six months. Man, that's okay, okay. But then you find out a cure just became available, right? Tomorrow. Okay, I mean, I, I can suffer differently. I know the end. I, I know what's coming. Or again, I've used this illustration. I know we got to go. Seven thirty. You owe one hundred thousand dollars. The bank is going to repossess your house, but your great aunt Judy just passed away, and she left you an inheritance, and it's coming on Friday. It's five million dollars. Are you worried now about the hundred thousand? No, because you know the end of the story. I hope that translates what we're talking about. We know the end. Here's what I wanted to talk about. I got give me one minute because this is the thing I said. I said I saw this a few years ago and it was just unbelievable. How can we trust? Now here's the question. Okay, nope. If you're if you're falling asleep, wake up. How can we trust that what is promised here is true? Now I hope all of you because the Bible says so. Amen. But listen, listen to this this phrase. I bet you missed it. Verse three, and I heard a loud voice. From the throne. From where? The throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Okay. How can we trust that this is true, that it's going to happen this way? Because it comes from the throne, and there's no higher authority. It's like when the president gives an executive order. We know it will be carried out because of the authority behind the claim. Where did the voice come from? The throne. Oh, man. We know that what's promised in Revelation 21, 1-4 will one day be because it comes from God. It's his word. His word can be trusted because it is the highest authority. Amen? Amen. Man, let me pray. Father, we are so thankful. I'm so thankful. For this reminder that we have in your word of the hope that is ours because it's promised from your mouth in your word. I pray, Father, that we as your people would live differently now in the present 
because of this grand future hope. And we thank you that it's guaranteed because the tomb is empty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.